As we prepare to hear God's word spoken to us, let's speak to him now in a word of prayer and ask for his help. Father, we today need your word to speak powerfully into our lives. Father, the most important news that any of us are going to hear this week come from your word. Father, if we, if we don't pay attention to what you have said to us, then we have no hope in this world. We will ultimately have no joy and no direction. So Father, I pray now that as we open up the word together, that you would open up our eyes to see, open up our ears to hear, and open up our hearts to receive wonderful things out of your word as we see your son, Jesus Christ, displayed in all of his glory. And we pray these things now in his name. Amen. Today, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 13. So Acts chapter 13, the book of Acts is all about revival. And as you read through the book of Acts, you can trace themes of revival throughout the story of the early Christians, while Luke, the author, is weaving together all of these different threads and characters and people and stories, he weaves them all together to show how the Holy Spirit was reviving the hearts of people uh, in the early church. And in this chapter, in Acts 13, the focus of the narrative shifts to uh, a new set of characters. They're, they're really old characters that we'd seen in previous chapters. And so as we look in Acts chapter 13, we're going to read from verses 32 through 43. If you want to be tapping or turning there in your Bibles. But before we get there, we, we kind of need to set the stage of what is happening. If you go back to Acts chapter 8, that's where we met a man named Saul who hated the church. He hated Christians and he wanted to see all of them either locked up or killed. And then in chapter 9, right after that, Saul is on his way to Damascus to seek to imprison more Christians. And on his way, he meets Jesus in this incredible encounter where he sees the risen Lord or he hears the voice of the risen Lord. He falls on his face. He repents of his sins. He believes in Jesus Christ for salvation. And then he's baptized three days later. It's remarkable. And one thing to note is that all of this happens in the year of A.D. 35 or, or 33 or 34. But then what happens is we fast forward just about four chapters here to chapter 13. And what Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't tell us is that from chapter 9 up to the text that we're looking at today in chapter 13 is that 14 years has passed. And we're now in AD 47 or 48. We can piece together some of that uh, chronology that's missing from the book of Acts uh, when we read some of Paul's other letters like Galatians uh, or 2 Corinthians where he provides us with some of the details of his journey during that 14-year period. 
but here's the summary of it. And here's, here's how it gets us to where we are today. From chapter 9, when Saul, also called Paul, is converted up to chapter 11, verse 25, we span 13 years of time. Luke just didn't mention that detail. Saul goes from Damascus into Arabia for three years and then back to Damascus. And then he goes to Jerusalem for a couple of weeks and then to Tarsus for 10 years. Then he moves to a city called Antioch and spends a year there. And then he goes back to Jerusalem in order to help with famine relief. And then in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul head back to the city of Antioch. And we are finally ready to start looking at our text for today. At the end of chapter 9, really, it it seems like the narrative of Acts just drops Saul. He's converted radically. He's baptized. And then for the next three or four chapters, the book of Acts really focuses on folks like Peter and Barnabas. They become the key movers and shakers in the early church. But here... In chapter 13, in verses 1 through 3, the church in Antioch ordains Barnabas and Saul and sends them off on a missionary journey to preach to the nations. Verse 1 lists Barnabas first among all of the elders in that church, indicating that he's he's probably the, the senior pastor. And verse 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Barnabas and Saul, who at this point is, is called Paul, really, they sail off to the island of Cyprus. This is where Barnabas grew up. It's where he calls home. And there they preach the word across the entire island. And then they reach the other side of the island and they sail off again. And they end up in a different city called Antioch that's in the region of Pisidia. And what they do is they they follow their custom. They head to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And verse 15 of this chapter says that the rulers of the synagogue ask if either Barnabas or Paul have any word of encouragement for the people. Any word of encouragement for the people. And so you'd think that Barnabas, the senior pastor of that church, the focus of the last couple of chapters in Acts. Uh, The guy whose name literally means son of encouragement would be the guy that gets up and delivers a word of encouragement, right? But to our surprise, it's Paul. Paul, at this point, has had 14 years of growing in his faith. I'm so glad that seminary didn't take me 14 years. It took me longer than it should have, but not 14 years. He met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. And from 2 Corinthians 12, we also know that while he was in Arabia, uh, God 
caught him up into heaven in his spirit and showed him glimpses of paradise and taught him all sorts of things. Paul received the gospel message of Jesus Christ directly from God himself. And then he confirmed it with Peter in Jerusalem. But up until this point in the book of Acts, we have never heard Paul speak. And so you might expect that Paul, after 14 years of growing in his knowledge of the word, of preaching to people, of studying the Bible, and even meeting God himself face to face, he has figured it out. He is a theological elite. He's had to have discovered the method for preaching to people that is going to spark a revival. And here is the moment, right, where the secret is going to be revealed. We've all been waiting for it. Paul is going to come in and he's going to start turning the world upside down with his uh, brand new marketing strategies or his uh, new evangelism techniques. He is bound to be the next big thing. And all the churches are going to start copying him in his sermons and his style. Paul is the proverbial skinny jeans wearing pastor of his day. Right? So what's the secret? What has Paul figured out? What does he say to these people? Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 43. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, By raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He's spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm. You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed By the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says the same old thing. Paul preaches the exact same message that Peter and Stephen did in the book of Acts before him. It's the old time religion. It's back to basic. 
Paul opens up the Bible and he explains how all of redemptive history is moving towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story of the Bible crescendos at the resurrection of Christ. And why is this important for us today? Well, this is the one thing I want you to hear from this sermon today. It's that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proclaimed in the ancient word, is the spark for reviving your own dormant heart and a dying city. You today are going to hear a sermon that you have heard preached a thousand times before. And that's exactly the point. Back in the summer of 1961... Uh, 38 football players gathered for training camp before the season kicked off. The team had come off a really hard loss after they uh, blew a fourth quarter lead in the championship game. But the players, they all knew they could do better. They were professionals. They knew uh, football well enough that they could uh, jump right back into training and hone their elite skills in order to come out on top the next year. And then in walked the coach and the players took a seat. And the coach did something a little unexpected. He held up the ball for all of them to see, and he said five words that have become absolutely iconic in football. Maybe you know them. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. The coach was Vince Lombardi. The team was the Green Bay Packers, and Lombardi took his top-tier NFL players all the way back down to the basics, the fundamentals. Because he knew that if you messed up those basics, if you messed up the fundamentals, you mess up the whole game. So the team opened up their playbooks all the way back to page one. And they started over fresh. It wasn't with fancy trick plays. It wasn't with advanced mechanics. It was the basics. Tackling. Blocking catching, running. But because this team got the fundamentals right, they went on to win five championships in seven years, and Lombardi never had another losing season until his retirement. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 27 Paul walks into the proverbial locker room with the Jewish playbook, the Old Testament, and his bold declaration to his listeners is that the elite Jewish rabbis of the day had completely missed the fundamental truth. Acts 13.27, the text says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that's Jesus, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. The Jewish leaders who had Jesus executed on the cross were the ones who thought they had the Old Testament figured out. 
They knew the playbook. They knew the promises of God that Paul had referred to back in verses 17 through 22. And they thought they knew them so well that when Jesus and the kingdom that he was ushering in didn't match up to their expectations, they killed him. And Paul declares that this is the great irony of the fulfillment. They thought they knew the scriptures, but it was actually their misguided understanding that led them to fulfilling the scriptures by crucifying Christ. They wanted the fulfillment of the scriptures to take place on their terms. And this so closely echoes a phrase that we hear in churches all the time today. When people say, well, you know what this passage means to me is. And Paul's sermon up to this point would have been elementary review for these people. Those in attendance, they knew the story of the Bible. In verses 17 through 22, Paul recounts their history. He got that God had promised to bless all of the nations Through Abraham's offspring. He formed the nation of Israel from Abraham's descendants. And they went on to be a flourishing nation for generations. And then God delivered them from the land of Egypt. And led them into the promised land. And he established the kingship. And promised that a king from the line of David. Would always reign on the throne. And that salvation for the whole world. Would come through Israel. But to these Jewish leaders who crucified the Lord, they believed that the fulfillment to the promises and the blessings weren't coming through the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but through political and cultural dominance over their enemies. Paul's listeners would have known all of these stories like the backs of their hands. Discussions about the Old Testament would have been a daily occurrence in these Jewish households. In other words, these people knew their theology. They were the theological and biblical elites like the Green Bay Packers were the elite football players. These people were ready for the next big thing. They wanted the secret to success. They were ready for the promise to be fulfilled. But like the Packers, they missed the fundamentals. It didn't matter what fancy theological terms they knew. It didn't matter what traditions they had enacted. It didn't matter what methods and techniques they had, vi- uh, they had devised in order to be more holy or to pray more or to memorize more scripture. It didn't matter what trick plays they had up their sleeves for trying to start their own revival. And Paul walks in and he holds the empty tomb in front of them. And he says, gentlemen, this is the fulfillment. Acts 13, 32 says, we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. How? By raising Jesus. We can't miss this. If we were looking for the secret key to unlocking an understanding of the Bible, this is it. 
Paul says that all of the Old Testament, all of the promises, all of history, all of the prophets' predictions, all of it is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And revival comes only as far as we can see the risen Savior in each and every passage of the Bible. Paul is preaching that same old message that Peter and Stephen had preached before him in the book of Acts, but he's preaching the same old message that the prophets and the law and the Psalms all did before that. And he's expecting that fundamental resurrection power of Jesus to still work and regenerate hearts, not only in his day, but also in our day today. And in this lies a warning For many of us in this room, myself included, many of us know about a lot about the Bible. We know the facts and the figures and the charts and the graphs. Uh, We know which prophet was preaching when which king was reigning. We know all the old bedtime Bible stories like Noah's Ark and David and Goliath and Moses parting the Red Sea. But if we cannot explain how each and every one of those things, every single one of those stories and texts finds fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we have missed the fundamental point of every one of those stories. Our hearts will remain asleep. Our cities will remain dead. And we will miss revival in our day because we missed the first revival that happened on Easter Sunday. But even if we can see the resurrection throughout the Bible, what's the point of that? What purpose does it serve? Is it just some great story about the mighty work of God in Jesus Christ? No. The resurrection of Jesus that's proclaimed in the ancient word is the spark for reviving your dormant heart. Jesus being raised from the dead raises us to life because it provides forgiveness for us. In the Bible, God has provided the way for us to have eternal life. Life everlasting. It's real and it is forever. And verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This book isn't just a collection of writings that were gathered together over hundreds of years in ancient times. This is the book that declares that forever is coming. And there are only two outcomes for all of us. We can face the wrath of God in judgment in hell for eternity. Or we can face our Savior face to face. In joy forever in heaven by believing in the resurrection of Christ. And Paul knows that his hearers need to hear this. He knows that his hearers need to grow in their understanding of how to see the resurrection of Jesus Christ in each and every passage. And so he's very kind. He gives them examples in his sermon. Look at verses 35 through 37. Paul quotes from Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, and he says, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. 
For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. David, that great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, as the Bible calls him, died and was buried and his body is still in the ground. His body saw decay and corruption. Why? Because he was fallen. David tasted death because David was a sinner. And King David's death because of sin served to foreshadow King Jesus' death for your sins. And so God sent his only son, his only begotten son to taste death For you. Verse 28 says that they found no guilt worthy of death in Jesus. He was perfect. He never sinned. He lived his life and did all of the good things that God commanded in the law of Moses. And yet verse 29 says they carried out all that was written of him. They took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. They fulfilled the scriptures By crucifying and burying Jesus. But the key difference here between David and Jesus is that God did not let his Holy One see corruption. And now verse 32, the good news that is brought to you is that he is not dead. He is risen. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead and his resurrection fulfills all. All of the promises of God that were so long foretold. The blessings promised to the world that would come through Israel weren't for land or for power or for wealth or political influence or for cultural dominance. But that the savior of the world, that forgiveness of sins, that salvation for sinners and eternal life granted in the presence of God would come through Jesus Christ. And just like David, without Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Your heart has grown spiritually cold. You're asleep. You're dormant. You're slumbering. And your heart is shackled and held down by sin and is held in the grave. It shuts your eyes to the goodness of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. You need the resurrection of Jesus Christ because you needed the death of Jesus Christ for your sins first. His death pays for your sins and you can be forgiven by God of all the wicked and wrong things that you have ever done. And because Jesus Christ lives, when you believe in him, you can be freed from the bondage of sin and corruption that clings so closely to you and condemns you before God. And when you believe, God will give you what verse 34 calls the sure and holy blessings of David. It's not a kingdom of this earth, but a kingdom that will never pass away where you will reign with your savior Jesus forevermore. And when you believe, your sins will be forgiven and you're freed, as verse 39 says, from trying to do good works to earn your salvation before God. And when you believe, you become a part of that redemptive story that God is telling throughout all of history. And you can help bring that message of salvation to the ends of the earth. 
Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is as true today as it was in the city of Antioch 2,000 years ago. So what do you do with a message like that? What do you do with the fact that God has orchestrated all of history so that you find yourself today in this very room, maybe for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time, hearing about the forgiveness of sins offered through the blood of Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life that's confirmed by his resurrection. What do you do with that? You respond. You respond like the people do in verses 42 and 43 with fervor and eagerness and zeal and hunger to know the word of God better. To see the resurrection of Jesus Christ clearer. Look at verses 42 and 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The people were hungry for God's word. They didn't end their service and run out the door as fast as they could to find a cheeseburger. They stayed. They asked questions of the pastors. Paul and Barnabas couldn't even get away from them. And the text says that they followed Paul and Barnabas out the door. They knew that that resurrection of Jesus Christ that was proclaimed in this ancient word had revived their dormant hearts and was now the only hope for their city. And so when was the last time that you found yourself on a Sunday morning hungrier for the word of God than whatever you're thinking about for lunch after church? When was the last time that the Bible simply made you say, wow, I want more of that. When was the last time that you found yourself reaching for your Bible instead of the TV remote because you were more interested in what God has to say about this world than the news anchor? When was the last time that you asked your friend what they found in God's word that morning rather than what they thought about the big game on TV last night? This chapter is filled with illustrations of people hearing the word of God and responding to it in amazement at the work that God has done through it. Look at verse 12. It says, The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Or the last verse of this chapter, verse 52. The disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And verse 42 gives us that picture of what a hunger for God's word looks like. The people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. They couldn't get enough of it. Does the word of God excite you? Or is it just something that you know you're supposed to do? It should excite you because only through the word does the spirit work to revive and regenerate dead hearts. And if you have little joy in the wonders of the scriptures, then you have to examine your heart. 
because you may have little faith. But when you see the resurrection of Jesus foretold and fulfilled in the text, it should stir up in your heart and create in you a fervor for righteousness and for sharing the message with others. So ask yourself, is your heart dormant? Is it asleep to the power of God working all around you and in history? Has it grown numb to hearing about the resurrection of Jesus time and time again? Is it just the same old story told to you once more? Or does it still electrify you? Does it fire you up? Are you captivated by the Bible? Maybe your heart is asleep to the beauty and the spectacle of the word. And maybe you need Paul's message here to kickstart your understanding of the Bible. Of understanding what it's really about. Because when you grasp that every single word in the scripture points to the resurrection of Jesus. And because of that you can have eternal life. It will jolt a dormant heart to life like an AED. And when you hear a sermon preached or a text taught. And you see how it ultimately culminates in Jesus' resurrection. The Holy Spirit can bring revival to your heart. Awake O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Beg God to spark that flame of revival in your heart by giving you a hunger for the Bible, to cherish it for all that it is worth, and to understand how in every way it points to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's listeners had their hearts awakened to the beauty and the power of the resurrection. And their response of fervor shook the city. Look at verse 44. In verse 44, those people who had followed Paul and Barnabas out the door begging for the word of God. Look what they did. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. These Christians hungered to see how the scriptures were fulfilled and they experienced the power of the resurrection. They found forgiveness for their sins through their faith. And then what did they do? They brought the whole city. Verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were, as were appointed to eternal life believed. God grants forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone who will call on the name of the Lord. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates that and promises that to us. And the people rejoiced because they had hope. Not only for just this life, but also the life to come. And they glorified the word of the Lord because in it they found the fount of truth and power. They found that their hope for everlasting life came through the word and their hearts were revived as they believed in Christ. And just like in Antioch, the only hope for revival for a dead city is when our hearts, our own hearts first are brought back to life through the resurrection. If revival is a mighty work of God, where the lost are saved and the saved are sanctified in surprising number, both of those things are only going to happen when we first, as Christians, hunger for the word of God and experience the forgiveness of the resurrection and then take it to the streets. We have to be like these believers in Antioch. You today are part of this great fulfillment of what the scriptures teach. You are just like the people in Antioch. 
You have heard of the resurrection of Jesus, the forgiveness that he offers you and the eternal impact that it has. This isn't anything new. This is an ancient message. This is the fundamental truth of Christianity. And you will today, today, right now in this moment, you are responding by faith and you will find forgiveness and life forevermore. Or you are rejecting the word and you're scoffing at the work that God has done in raising up Jesus from the dead, even as you hear me tell it to you. Paul and Barnabas brought the good news of the resurrection to a dead city that needed to hear it. And some responded in faith and their hearts were awakened and they found forgiveness and life. Yet others responded with animosity and hatred towards the word. We see that in verse 50 and 51. Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off of their feet and moved on to others who would hear and hunger for the word. And so just like the people of Antioch, you today, when you hear the word of God, you have to do something with it. The only acceptable response is to believe. Because there will be a day, it might even be today, when every single Christian that you know who has been calling you to repentance and who has been calling you to believe in Jesus is ultimately going to shake the dust off of their feet as they rise in the air to be with the Lord forevermore, where they will live with Him and reign with Him for eternity. And in that moment, it will be too late to respond in faith. So do it now. Our call today is to hear this ancient message and respond like the people of Antioch with fervor and eagerness, hunger for this word from God where he has displayed his power and his might in resurrecting his son Jesus from the dead. For from this word is where we receive faith. We find forgiveness and we await eternity when we too will be resurrected and no longer see decay and corruption. But until that day, I say to you, Christians, my brothers and sisters who are here today, that we must boldly proclaim and eagerly cherish and joyfully receive the ancient message, the old time religion, the fundamentals, the resurrection of Jesus Christ found in the word of God over and over and over again, because in it and in it alone lies our own hope. For resurrection. And in it and in it alone lies our hope for revival in our dormant hearts. And in it and in it alone lies our hope for a dying city that needs to hear it. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we respond now to your word in our own hearts. Father, that you would soften the hearts of those who are hardened. That this message of the resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins found in him might permeate into stony hearts. Father, that you would take out stony hearts and make them alive again. Father, I pray for those who had already done that before they came in this room today. For those who have been Christians for a while now. Father, that they would not forget about the resurrection power of Jesus, that they would search for it throughout all the scriptures, 
that it would stir up their hearts and their souls and their minds to follow after you and proclaim this message of hope to this dead and dying world. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts today. Help us to respond to your word in faith and repentance. And we ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.